I'm your moderator, Chris Paul. Let's be reasonable. If you're looking out for your side and your side ain't looking out for you, well, maybe you don't have a side at all. It's high noon for Wednesday, December 8th, 2021. Follow the podcast on the Telegram Messenger app at t.me slash I'm your moderator or join the discussion thread at t.me slash I'm reasonable. You can also find me on Gab and Getter at I'm your moderator. The Substack is I'm your moderator.substack.com and the merch site is cancelcouture.com or go direct shop.spreadshirt.com slash cancel dash couture. Today is the 322nd day of Barack Obama's third term, as served by the half-dead, demented, degenerate, ventriloquist dummy, fake proxy president Joe Biden, who was overwhelmingly compromised by the Chinese Communist Party, the patriarch of one of the most corrupt families in American history, and the father of one of the most despicable sons to ever walk the earth. That's Hunter Biden. So congratulations, commies! Your grand plan was supposed to usher in a burgeoning utopia. But instead, that grand plan was written by a whole bunch of incompetent and narcissistic communists. And instead of working to the benefit of the world and its people, or even to the benefit of the people in power who set these plans in motion, it is all completely falling apart to the point where those grand plans, this overall strategy is now empowering us. So thanks, commies. Everything you're doing is exposing corruption on a massive scale to the point where the entire country and the entire world finally understand what exactly is going on. And if you're beginning to realize that, well, all you got to do is migrate back to America. Just leave all the stupid and evil communist ideas behind and come on back. All you have to do after you get rid of all those terrible ideas produced by incompetence and accepted due to the narcissistic idea that your team is always right and whatever they produce is sure to bring on that beautiful technocratic utopia. You just need to go make sure you make amends with all the people you have shamed and bullied and slandered and censored and tried to get fired from their jobs. And once you have achieved these goals, you will be accepted back into America with open arms by Americans because Americans want more Americans involved in the project of America, the project of human liberty and self-governance. And with that, I would love to extend a warm Wednesday high noon welcome to all of the redeemable communists out there. Hello, commies. Welcome to the show. Now I know what you're thinking. I'm not a communist. Sorry, you are. If you are aiding and abetting the advancement and encroachment of global communism, especially in America, but really all across the world, then you, my friend, are a communist. And that is the result of compliance with all of the encroaching communism you see across the world. You like wearing masks? 
communist. You voted for Joe Biden and haven't realized yet how stupid that was? Communist. You're pretending that Joe Biden actually got 81 million real legal American votes because of how taking that position is perceived by your social peers? Communist. And if you really want to get technical about it, I have sent a bunch of people who continue to make this complaint that this is not communism. It could not be communism. You shouldn't use the word communism just because it's communism. <laughs> communism, saying communism is divisive. Calling people commies is divisive. Okay, well, what do you want me to call them? It's the right word, correctly applied. The word itself is just a descriptive term. The word itself is not divisive. The narratives around the word might be divisive, but I'm not Joseph McCarthy, and I'm not trying to find communists and label them and have them ejected from society and punished. I'm trying to convince them, hey, all that stuff you think is actually supporting communism. And I know you don't think you're doing that, which tells me that you don't want to be doing it and you don't realize you're doing it. But the truth is you are doing it. So the solution is to recognize that and then find your way out. I'm not suggesting these people be punished. I mean, I am suggesting that sometimes they are mocked and ridiculed, but that's kind of what you deserve for cluelessly walking yourself into a hate movement, for instance. And I'm absolutely confident that history will prove me correct. Now, speaking of history proving me correct, I have begun to listen to the audiobook version of Robert F. Kennedy Jr.'s excellent book, The Real Anthony Fauci. I'm a few hours into it. I think it's like a 25-hour listen. It is a very long, very dense book. It is extraordinarily well-sourced and cited, and it is supported and blurbed by countless world-renowned experts. But I'm sitting here listening to this and thinking, oh yeah, I said that last year. Oh, I said that last year. Oh, I said that last year. Over and over and over and over and over again about almost everything. And it's not everything. I would never say that. Robert F. Kennedy's work is reaching a depth that I was not even aware of. Like it is as bad as I have always said it is and a little bit worse than that. And so I'm still getting these little nuggets like, oh, wow, that explains so much. Like all these little missing links. Anthony Fauci is absolutely a Nazi doctor on the level of Joseph Mengele. And I have been saying that for well over a year. I said, for instance, in April of 2020, that lockdowns are the single greatest scientific, political, and moral error in human history. And I only feel more strongly about that now. I don't have to back off a statement like that at all, even though I made it 18 months ago. And the funny thing is 
That statement will only look better in retrospect as people begin to learn all of the things that are actually in that book. And I cannot recommend highly enough to all of you that you figure out a way to get that book. I don't care if you get the hard copy, you read it on your tablet, or you get the audiobook. Figure out some way to put all of that information into your head, and you will have no doubt about where I am coming from vis-a-vis the coronavirus. Now, the strange thing is that this book, so far at least, is fairly biased against President Trump, even though he was the one making all of these points that destroy Fauci's narrative. Not that anyone listened to him and not that the media reported it, but I spent my afternoons last year during that initial few months or so of the pandemic period watching Trump's press conferences every day and actually following what was coming out of the White House. And it turns out that Trump was saying a lot of those things, too, which is how I came to trust President Trump in the first place. But I think when you get into this book and you begin to understand this COVID situation in full, right, like all the facts about the situation just piled on top of one another in a very cohesive narrative form, you will immediately come to the conclusions that I have reached in terms of the overall scale of this project. It doesn't stop at Anthony Fauci and the coronavirus. It is part of a much larger whole. Now, this book is focused on Anthony Fauci and the coronavirus, quite obviously. What I'm saying is there is no way to execute something so obviously evil and anti-scientific without there being a much larger support system as part of a much larger project. And I think you will notice that very quickly as you get into the book. I highly, highly recommend it. Now, one note before I get started, yesterday, Amazon Web Services went down, I think countrywide, maybe worldwide, for a certain period of time, affecting different services of theirs. There have been some reports that it's a cyber attack, but ultimately, who knows? Anyway, the platform that I published this podcast on was down for a period of time. So many people did not get alerted at all yesterday that I had actually put up an episode. So if you missed it yesterday, there is one there. So go ahead and check that out. Now, what I was talking about in the introduction about their plans actually imploding on themselves and benefiting us, This is as good an example as you can get. This is from the Wall Street Journal today. Hispanic voters now evenly split between parties. WSJ poll finds. Now, before I get started on this article, I want everybody to recall the fact that over the last decade or so, we have heard from the mainstream media and from the Democrat Communist Party that they believe there will be a permanent Democrat-run America based on the changing demographics of the country and the growth of the Hispanic population, the white population becoming smaller and smaller so that it is a majority-minority country. That is what they have told us is coming, and they believe that the majority-minority population in America 
will permanently elect Democrats. Now, is that extraordinarily racist? Yes. But beyond that, this is actually a plan that they were trying to execute. They wanted their power to come from a population that they could just bring more of into the country every year. And we talked about that yesterday with the push in New York City to make voting legal for non-citizens. We can see them doing this pretty clearly as they're bringing two million illegal immigrants across what they believe is effectively an open border with Mexico. Their political goals were centered around shifting demographics. At least that's what they told us. Though it might be more accurate to describe the situation as their political goals being based on election fraud that they would then justify on the basis of shifting demographics. That might be the most accurate way. Anyway, Wall Street Journal this morning, this is Aaron Zittner. The nation's large and diverse group of Hispanic voters is showing signs of dividing its support between Democrats and Republicans more evenly than in recent elections. A new Wall Street Journal poll finds a troubling development for the Democrat Party, which has long counted on outsized Hispanic support. One year after giving Democratic House candidates more than 60 percent of their votes, <laughs> nudge, nudge. According to polls at the time, the journal survey found that Hispanic voters are evenly split in their choice for Congress. Asked which party they would back if the election were today, 37% of Hispanic voters said they would support the Republican congressional candidate and 37% said they would favor the Democrat, with 22% undecided. Hispanic voters were also evenly divided when asked about a hypothetical rematch in 2024 of the last presidential contenders, with 44% saying they would back fake President Biden and 43% supporting former President Donald Trump. In 2020, Mr. Biden won 63% support among Hispanic voters, nearly 30 points more than Trump, according to AP VoteCast, a large survey of the presidential electorate. And of course, no one should believe that. Hispanic voters account for about one in eight eligible voters and are one of the fastest growing groups in the electorate, factors that compound Democratic fears about any deterioration in support. Latinos are more and more becoming swing voters. They're a swing vote that we're going to have to fight for, said Democratic pollster John Anzalone, whose company conducted the Wall Street Journal poll, along with the firm of Republican pollster Tony Fabrizio. Mr. Anzalone and Fabrizio said the poll showed that economic issues were the main concern among Hispanic voters, drawing Hispanic men in particular toward the GOP. Hispanic voters in the survey ranked economic issues as the priority for Mr. Biden and Congress to address. Hispanic men said Republicans had the better economic policy by a margin of 17 points. Hispanic women, by contrast, said Democrats had better economic plans by a 10 point margin. A majority of Hispanic men said they would like to return to the policies that Mr. Trump pursued as president, while a majority of Hispanic women said they would rather stick with Mr. Biden's policies. And it shows some of the various polling questions and results. Interestingly, the overall approval, do you approve or disapprove of the job Joe Biden is doing as president? Hispanics overall, 54% disapprove, 42% approve. That 
is a Democrat communist nightmare. Among all adults, 57% disapprove and 41% approve. You see, in this poll, there's a group of Hispanic men who were without a doubt enticed by Trump and have become more Republican. We have more work to do on that, Mr. Anzalone said, referring to Democrat candidates and their allies. Mr. Fabrizio said, this says to me that the economy matters, particularly to Hispanic men. The economy and economic factors are driving them. The survey is the first under a new Wall Street Journal poll that will explore the forces driving American politics and changes in society. The firms of Fabrizio and Anzalone will work together on surveys on the political landscape. The journal survey included 1,500 registered voters, including 165 Hispanic voters. The margin of error for the Hispanic sample was plus or minus 7.6 percentage points. So that is quite a lot, honestly. Strategists in both parties have been working since the 2020 election to calculate the size of the shift among Hispanic voters to the GOP and to understand its causes. One in-depth study by Catalyst, which compiles and analyzes voter data for Democrat candidates and progressive causes, found that Hispanic voters swung toward Trump by eight points compared with 2016 in the two-party vote. Shifts in some parts of the country were larger. In its analysis of the 2020 electorate, Equus Labs, which studies the Latino electorate, found swings toward the GOP of 20 points in parts of Florida's Miami-Dade County, of 12 points in the Rio Grande Valley of Texas, and double-digit swings in parts of the Northeast. In South Florida, the shift was big enough to flip two congressional seats to the GOP, the firm concluded. Analyses by various groups have cited a range of causes for the shift, including higher turnout among the most conservative Hispanic voters, GOP success in persuading voters who turn out infrequently, and frustration over job losses due to pandemic-related business shutdowns. In last month's election for governor in Virginia, AP VoteCast found that Republican Glenn Youngkin, who won the race, outpolled his Democrat opponent among Hispanic voters. In the journal survey, Hispanic voters had a negative outlook on the economy, with 25% saying it was headed in the right direction and 63% saying it was headed in the wrong direction. That 38-point gap compared with a 31-point gap among all voters. Hispanic voters saw Republicans in Congress as better able than Democrats to handle some economic issues, such as reining in inflation and cutting the federal deficit. They also saw Republicans as best able to secure the border. Now, isn't that interesting? The entire time the Democrat Party was telling us that the country would be Democrat forever based on these demographic shifts, they were also simultaneously reducing the Hispanic vote to Hispanics supporting whoever was for open immigration. That is what we were always told. Hispanic voters vote based on immigration policies because anyone who tries to restrict open immigration in any way is a racist. And Hispanic voters would never align themselves with that sort of racism, except for the fact that Hispanic voters are smart people just like everyone else. And they realize that immigration isn't about racism. And the truth is, they probably have a better awareness of that than the overeducated morons on cable news. And they probably have at least some understanding that their votes are being taken for granted and that they themselves are being used for the political ends of one particular party. The same party, by the way, 
that always divides by race and tries to create political gain based on that division. The Hispanic voters saw Democrats in Congress as better able to control the COVID-19 pandemic, rebuild infrastructure, and make health care more affordable. Well, those people are going to go ahead and realize how wrong they were about that, too. The results showed Hispanic voters differing little from the overall electorate in their political preferences. Hispanic voters mirrored the overall voter pool, for example, when asked how Mr. Biden was handling his job. Some 42 percent approved of the president's job performance and 54 percent disapproved in line with the 41 percent approval and 57 percent disapproval among the broader voting public. Now, of course, that's not the only bad news for the Democrat Communist Party in the Wall Street Journal poll. This is from Town Hall Guy Benson. Unpopular, newly revamped Wall Street Journal poll packed with bleak news for Biden and Democrats. First, an interesting polling note about this pollster itself. The Wall Street Journal has teamed up with NBC News to conduct national and state level surveys for decades, and we've analyzed them many times. But that long-standing alliance has apparently been dissolved as the journal launches its own proprietary polling product without any media partners. Axios reported on this development a few days ago, mining a few worthwhile nuggets. Now it's launching a new polling operation without media partners, and it's bringing on campaign experts to help. The journal's executive Washington editor, Jerry Sieb, told Axios. The company has contracted two firms led by John Anzalone, the lead pollster for President Biden's 2020 presidential campaign, and Tony Fabrizio, the lead pollster for former President Trump's presidential 2016 and 2020 campaigns. The firms will help put together the new Wall Street Journal poll. The quarterly poll will explore political trends and voter sentiments around key issues. The data will be deployed across all Dow Jones properties, including Barron's, Dow Jones Newswires, and MarketWatch. The polls will have larger sample sizes to add confidence to the results and be able to look at demographic groups with increased statistical reliability, Sieb said. And that was clipped from Axios, now back to Benson in Town Hall. I think political observers should welcome innovations and changes in the polling space, given some of the industry's infamous flops and misses over the years, although successes sometimes get overlooked. That's why I find Trafalgar's work so intriguing. The inaugural Wall Street Journal poll was released yesterday, and its results are rather ugly for President Biden and his party. Let's start with the top line number on approval. And he links a tweet showing what we just discussed. 57% disapprove, 41% approve. When it comes to intensity of sentiment, Biden's predicament comes into even clearer focus. Just 19% of voters strongly approve of his performance, while 46% strongly disapprove. Biden is underwater by 16 points overall, but he's in even worse shape among independent voters and those who say they're undecided ahead of the 2022 midterms. Among those voters, he's at 30% approval. 66% disapproval, and 29% approval, 63% disapproval, respectively. And again, that's among independent voters and then voters who say they're undecided. That's abysmal. Republicans lead Democrats by three points on the generic congressional ballot, a measure on which the GOP generally trails. And as mentioned, undecided voters have a very dim view of Biden's presidency. Being tied or even ahead is a very good sign for the current minority party, albeit with 11 months to go until voters go to the polls. On the number one issue facing voters, the economy, Republicans hold a double digit advantage, 46 to 35 percent. The pollsters who served Biden and Trump's campaigns last year asked voters how they'd vote 
in a hypothetical 2024 rematch. Biden holds a statistically insignificant one point lead over Trump in spite of his dismal approval rating. But voters narrowly prefer Trump's policies. A large majority of voters, 63 percent to 27 percent, say the country is on the wrong track. Republicans lead on not just the economy, plus 11, but also tackling inflation, plus 18, and securing the border, plus 36. Democrats' advantages are on COVID and healthcare with a single-digit lead on education. This is also a bit of a wow data point, indicating that Republicans really are making serious gains among Hispanic voters. If this trend continues, when will Democrats start chanting about building a wall? The insulting, out-of-touch Latinx moniker is only emblematic of a larger problem Democrats have created for themselves, it seems. As for the fate of Biden's domestic Build Back Better scheme, two crucial swing votes in the Senate are sounding less than enthusiastic about spending trillions of dollars in this environment, particularly amid inflation. And then he links some quotes and audio from Kirsten Cinema and Joe Manchin. Now let's change subjects completely, but... Here's the hidden segue. This is another example of the Democrat communist plan blowing up in their faces. This is from Reuters this morning. Pfizer BioNTech vaccine neutralizes Omicron with three shots by Ludwig Berger and Michael Ehrman. BioNTech and Pfizer said on Wednesday a three-shot course of their COVID-19 vaccine was able to neutralize the new Omicron variant in a laboratory test, and they could deliver an upgraded vaccine in March 2022 if needed. And thank goodness they have a laboratory test that shows that their vaccine does something, even though in the real world, over and over again, it has been proven not to do anything except destroy people's immune systems. The German and U.S. companies said two doses of their vaccine resulted in significantly lower neutralizing antibodies, but a third dose boosted those antibodies by a factor of 25. The first line of defense with two doses of vaccination might be compromised and three doses of vaccination are required to restore protection. BioNTech Chief Medical Officer Oslem Tarici said at a press conference. The company suggested that two doses may still protect against severe disease. May. Two doses may still protect against severe disease. They don't say two doses do still protect against severe disease. What happened to that? What happened to two doses protect against infection? And two doses protect against transmission? And two doses protect against severe disease and death? Well, all of that has gone right out the window. BioNTech and Pfizer are the first manufacturers of a COVID vaccine to issue an official update on the efficacy of their shot against Omicron. In samples of blood taken around a month after the third shot, the Omicron variant was neutralized about as effectively as two doses neutralized the original virus identified in China. BioNTech CEO Ugar Sahin suggested that countries might consider shortening the time period between the second and third doses of the vaccine to combat the new variant. And I imagine that next after that, he will suggest shortening the time period between the third and fourth doses, the fourth and fifth doses, the fifth and sixth doses. And that continues to infinity and beyond. He cited 
recent moves by countries, including Britain, to bring the third shot forward to three months after the second shot from six months previously and from not at all before that, except to people like me and many others who were like, hey, you're signing up for a lifetime subscription to a vaccine program and you are never, ever going to know what's in that vaccine. Isn't that exciting? A lifetime subscription. And everyone said, no, that's a conspiracy. This is a vaccine. It's very safe and effective. And we know that vaccine means you're protected forever. So that whole lifetime subscription thing, well, that's just preposterous. What a silly, crazy conspiracy theory. Where did you even get that from? And then it happens in reality and you say, hey, look at this. It's a lifetime subscription. And they say, no, that's crazy. That's a conspiracy theory. Because the truth is they don't care about facts at all. They just want to still make sure that they have a way to believe in their child brains that they are still right about anything, even though they have been wrong about everything and always in the same direction and always for the same reasons. We believe this is the right way to go, particularly if the Omicron is now spreading further to enable a better level of protection in the winter season, Sahin said. The Omicron variant first detected in South Africa and Hong Kong last month. But no, it wasn't. It was actually detected long before that in Botswana. And we've discussed that. Has triggered global alarm about another surge in infections. But what it hasn't triggered is another surge in infections. It has only triggered global alarm. Cases have already been reported from Japan to the United States and across Europe. Oh, no. The World Health Organization classified Omicron on November 26th as a variant of concern, but said there was no evidence to support the need for new vaccines specifically designed to tackle the variant and its mutations. But no matter, the drug companies are going to go ahead and make those vaccines anyway. And then people like Anthony Fauci and public health officials all around the world who have done absolutely nothing to save anyone's lives and instead geared all their efforts toward enrolling people in a lifetime subscription to a vaccine service. Well, they're going to tell us that we have to take those vaccines or else we are unvaccinated and can't live our normal lives and also should be the subject of scorn from our peers. Nevertheless, the company said they would continue efforts to bring an Omicron specific COVID-19 vaccine to market. Isn't that amazing? The very next sentence, they are just defying the World Health Organization, the experts. What will we do when no one listens to the experts? Oh, no. Work started when the variant first raised concern on November 25th. They said their planned production of 4 billion doses of the Comirnaty vaccine in 2022 was not expected to change if an adapted vaccine was required. Oh, huh. So they don't have the Comirnaty vaccine available anywhere at all, but they're going to make 4 billion doses of it. And that doesn't change regardless of what happens with the Omicron and then new vaccines they might develop for this very insignificant variant. These findings are broadly in line with a preliminary study published by researchers at the Africa Health Research Institute in South Africa on Tuesday, which said Omicron could partially evade protection from two doses of the Pfizer-BioNTech vaccine and suggested a third shot might help fend off infection. 
And I think it would be normal at that point to ask what findings are in line with this study, because all we've been told is what the drug makers say we should do. Are those the findings that are broadly in line with this preliminary study? Got it. Research on the new variant is still at an early stage. Laboratory analysis at University Hospital Frankfurt in Germany found the ability to mount an antibody response to Omicron in people who had three shots was up to 37 times lower than the response to Delta. The companies believe that vaccinated individuals may still be protected against severe forms of the disease, BioNTech and Pfizer said. But of course, they already said that at the top of the article. It's good that they're repeating this very ambiguous statement here so that it sounds like there's more proof that they may still be protected against severe forms of the disease. That is especially relevant when we know now that Omicron is less severe than all prior forms. So yes, I suppose that the vaccine can prevent severe disease against a virus that does not cause severe disease. What a great scientific achievement. The vast majority of surface structures on the Omicron spike protein targeted by the T cells, which typically emerge after vaccination, are not affected by Omicron's mutations, they said. T cells are the second pillar of an immune response alongside antibodies and are believed to prevent severe disease by attacking infected human cells. For their analysis, the two companies used a virus that was bioengineered to have the hallmark mutations of Omicron, known as a pseudovirus. And blood was collected from subjects three weeks after a second vaccine dose or one month after a third. Oh, that's so interesting that they do their research on laboratory created viruses. <laughs> and here I thought that the virus was nothing like anything that could have ever been engineered and had all the markings as something that evolved from nature. There is no significant data yet on how vaccines from Moderna and Johnson and Johnson and other drug makers hold up against the new variant, but they are expected to release their own data within weeks. And I, for one, can't wait. Along these same lines, there is a very interesting article in The Telegraph from last night. Omicron variant may be a live COVID vaccine, claims Vladimir Putin. This is by Sarah Newey who specializes in global health security. Vladimir Putin has compared Omicron to a live vaccine, downplaying the potential risks posed by the variant, which has now lapped the globe. On Tuesday, the Russian president suggested fears about Omicron, a highly mutated coronavirus strain, which is designated a variant of concern by the World Health Organization, may turn out to be premature. Let's not get ahead of ourselves, Mr. Putin said. They say it's not that virulent. Some specialists even call it a live vaccine. Live vaccines include an attenuated or weakened form of the virus that causes a particular disease to trigger an immune response that will generate protective antibodies, but is not strong enough to make an individual sick. The measles, mumps, and rubella and yellow fever vaccines both include attenuated virus, for instance. There has been some early evidence from South Africa suggesting Omicron may trigger milder disease than previous variants. And even Lord Fauci himself said to an AFP reporter yesterday that the Omicron variant is, quote, clearly highly transmissible, but almost certainly not more severe than Delta. 
So uh, run for the hills, I guess. A study of 166 patients in hospitals in the Chuani district of Guatang province. Hope I'm saying that right. The epicenter of the Omicron outbreak. Actually, it's not the epicenter. It's just the place that everybody took the report from and then freaked out. Shows that patients are predominantly younger than those hospitalized in the first and second waves of the pandemic, and they are less likely to need oxygen. But Eleanor Riley, a professor of infectious disease immunology at the University of Edinburgh, told The Telegraph that letting Omicron spread uncontrolled is not a sensible strategy, especially if it proves to evade vaccines. This is a concern because of the 50 mutations detected in Omicron, 32 are in the spike protein, which the current crop of vaccines target to boost the body's immune system. Mr. Putin might be right if it really is very, very mild, she said, but letting it spread in an unconstrained manner is not a risk any of us should take given the information we have currently. Professor Riley added that if the level of protection offered by vaccines takes a hit due to the Omicron variant, then quote, Things will get a lot worse before they get better and more restrictions are inevitable. So you got that? They don't know how dangerous it is. All signs point to it not being very dangerous, but they want to be clear that we still need to implement mitigation steps to reduce the spread because it wouldn't be safe to just let this very mild variant spread throughout a population. What we need to do is restrict the liberty and activity of everyone all around the world, even though it hasn't worked a single time so far. And yes, we need people to mask, even though masks don't work. And we need people to get vaccinated, even though vaccines don't work. And we need to destroy their lives and businesses, even though that doesn't work either. But we have to do all of those things to slow the spread of something whose spread we can't slow. In case, in opposition to all the data so far, this actually is very, very, very dangerous and not very, very, very mild, as all the data show so far. Mr. Putin's comments came after the head of the World Health Organization in Europe warned that travel bans will do little to combat Omicron as the variant is already, quote, everywhere, adding that it has already been identified in 21 countries in the region. Worldwide, it has now been found in well over 40 nations, including two cases in Russia. Oh, no. As surveillance capacity and genomic sequencing is going to be scaled up, more and more countries surely will report on cases of Omicron. Dr. Hans Klug told a press briefing on Tuesday with nothing but hope in his eyes and his soul. Yes, Hopefully we will be able to find more cases of this and make it seem very severe so that we can justify all the things that we are going to do anyway. He also stressed that there are huge unknowns about how the variant behaves. It has yet to be seen how and whether the latest COVID-19 variant of concern, Omicron, will be more transmissible and more severe, he said. And I guess in this case, it remains to be seen just means we haven't gotten the narrative results we expected out of the narrative we tried to execute. And so what we're going to do is keep waiting and keep telling people that this is very, very dangerous until we figure out a justification for saying that. And hopefully 
if everybody goes out and gets this booster, we're going to be able to tell everyone that the variant is causing all of the booster-related health problems and not the booster. And that in mind, Dr. Robert Malone tweeted this today, citing a Lancet study that just came out. In peer-reviewed prospective observational study of 1,072,313 patients, UK group unable to tell the difference between vaccine effects and COVID-19. And the report in The Lancet is called Disentangling Post-Vaccination Symptoms from Early COVID-19. He goes on to tweet, what do the vaccines and COVID have in common? Spike protein. The big difference is that the vaccines cause the body and immune system to deal with a large quantity of spike over a short period of time, very different from natural infection. But consider what he's saying here. They are unable to differentiate between early stage COVID and the early reaction to the vaccine. But remember, it's a pandemic of the unvaccinated. Now, I haven't talked much on here, but I think people are probably generally aware that the FDA has been trying to hold back all of the data on which they based their approvals of these experimental gene therapies. This is from Aaron Siri's Substack called Injecting Freedom. FDA doubles down, asks federal judge to grant it until at least the year 2096 to fully release Pfizer's COVID-19 vaccine data. A prior post explained that the FDA has asked a federal judge to make the public wait until the year 2076 to disclose all of the data and information it relied upon to license Pfizer's COVID-19 vaccine, literally a 55-year delay. My firm, on behalf of PHMPT, asked that this information be disclosed in 108 days, the same amount of time it took for the FDA to review and license Pfizer's vaccine. The court ordered the parties to submit briefs in support of their respective positions by December 6, 2021. The FDA's brief incredibly doubles down. It now effectively asks to have it until at least 2096 to produce the Pfizer documents, not a typo a total of at least 75 years. Other than producing an initial approximately 12,000 pages in around two months, the FDA thereafter only wants to commit to producing 500 pages per month. The FDA also disclosed that it actually has approximately at least 451,000 pages to produce. So 500 pages per month would be 6,000 pages per year. And I suppose that's about how they estimate needing 75 years to produce this data to the public. Each side gets to file response briefs on December 13th, 2021, and then there is oral argument on December 14th, 2021 before the judge. If you want to read the response to the FDA's position, a copy of the introduction in the brief my firm filed is below, and below that a downloadable copy of each side's full briefing is available. Enjoy. And if you find what you are reading difficult to believe, that is because it is dystopian for the government to give Pfizer billions, mandate Americans to take its product, prohibit Americans from suing for harms, but yet refuse to let Americans see the data underlying its licensure. 
The lesson yet again is that civil and individual rights should never be contingent upon a medical procedure. Now, I don't want to create the impression that only the Democrat Communist Party is exposing itself. The Republicans in the Uniparty, the Republicans who are enthralled to global communism, are also exposing themselves at an extraordinary rate. This is from The Federalist this morning, Christopher Jacobs. Mitch McConnell bails out Chuck Schumer on debt limits and spending. Just when Democrats and their agenda continue to flounder, along comes Mitch McConnell to give them another lifeline. Rather than using the mismanagement of the Senate by Majority Leader Chuck Schumer to extract concessions, McConnell gave two huge concessions to bail Schumer out of his self-inflicted wounds. A bill introduced on Tuesday would allow for another increase in the debt limit and forestall expected Medicare reductions that are a sole result of Democrats' disastrous agenda. It's all part and parcel of the McConnell approach to lose as efficiently as possible. The bill contains two components. One would create a process allowing a one-time only increase in the debt limit to pass on an expedited basis in the Senate. The increase must occur between now and January 15th and must contain a whole dollar amount increase in the limit. The language means that Democrats could not just vote to suspend the limit and allow the Treasury to incur unlimited debt between now and a certain date. The one-time debt limit increase resolution complying with this process could pass after 10 hours of debate and without amendment. Effectively, then, passing this bill would allow Democrats to pass the subsequent resolution, likely within the next seven to 10 days, increasing the debt limit on their own, i.e. with 50 Democrat votes in the Senate and without the potential of a Republican filibuster. I previously explained that at present, Democrats cannot pass any debt limit increase on their own unless all 50 Democrat senators agree to abolish the filibuster, which several Democrats have said they will not do. As a result, McConnell and Senate Republicans have immense leverage to demand policy concessions. For instance, a halt to Democrats' plans to ram the Build Back Bankrupt plan through Congress. Here, as in October, McConnell has chosen not to use the leverage he has. If you think that's bad enough, as the old infomercial saying goes, but wait, there's more. The bill would also delay a series of desperately needed spending reductions scheduled to take place in January and February. The bill would, one, slowly reinstate the 2% Medicare sequester between now and June 30th. Congress had suspended these 2% reductions in last year's CARES Act as a way to alleviate pressure on doctors and hospitals when the pandemic first hit. Two, Adjust another change for Medicare physician payments. Last December, spending bill prescribed a 3.75% payment increase, but only for 2021. Instead of allowing this provision to expire outright, the bill would prescribe a 3% increase for 2022, meaning physicians would effectively see a 0.75% reduction under this provision next year. Three, postpone for one year a 4% Medicare sequester and other reductions to mandatory spending scheduled to take effect in February under the statutory pay-as-you-go act. This last provision absolves Democrats from the fiscal consequences of their COVID relief bill earlier this year. Because that bill increased the deficit by nearly $1.9 trillion, the statutory pay-go law would have required the Office of Management and Budget to secure to issue a sequester order earlier next year, mandating offsetting reductions to Medicare and other agricultural programs. Consider the twisted logic of unnamed aides trying to pitch the advantages of this strategy to the press. 
GOP leadership views the agreement as a win for them because a quicker debt limit increase process also lets them spend more time attacking Democrats over their social and climate spending plan. That claim doesn't pass the smell test on two levels. First, what better way to attack Democrats over their fiscal policies than to allow reductions in Medicare payments to take effect as a result of those skewed policies? Moreover, as Democrats themselves pointed out earlier this fall, a quicker process lets Democrats spend more time passing their social and climate spending plan. The entire bill follows the McConnell strategy of losing in the most efficient manner possible to a T. First, it allows Republicans to say they voted not to increase the debt limit, but to stop the Medicare spending reductions, and that a process allowing Democrats to increase the debt limit just so happened to get added to the bill. McConnell's anger at Schumer over the October debt limit fiasco occurred not because he had to help Democrats raise the debt limit. After all, McConnell has voted to raise the debt limit countless times. Rather, it came because Schumer, one, forced McConnell to help pass a clean debt limit increase, one without any fig leaf to claim McConnell was voting for something else, on to which a debt limit increase just happened to be attached, and two, proceeded to gloat about it publicly. Second, by delaying rather than eliminating outright the scheduled spending reductions, it allows Republicans to claim that they're not letting Democrats off the hook for the fiscal irresponsibility of their $1.9 trillion budget busting bill earlier this year. But think about it. If Republicans can't force these spending reductions to go into effect with a Democratic House, Democratic Senate and Democratic White House and Democrats trying to jam through another budget busting bill on a party line vote, what chance do you think they will let these spending reductions go into effect early in 2023, particularly if Republicans gain control of one or both chambers of Congress? Then again, if Republicans act this way by aiding and abetting Democrats' fiscal irresponsibility, perhaps they don't deserve to retake the majority in the first place. And if you were someone who was running this uniparty system, this total and complete facade that we have where there are actually two sides, a Democrat side and a Republican side that are somehow trying to always beat the other side. If you are the person that was setting up this facade, this is exactly the sort of thing you would want from the Republicans. And realizing that it is really easy to see what Mitch McConnell's goal is. And there is no reason whatsoever to think that Mitch McConnell is out of line with the Republican establishment because the entirety of the Republican establishment is just as enthralled to the global communist powers as Mitch McConnell himself. And once again, they think that this will play in the mainstream. They think that they can get establishment Republicans in the public to go along with this stuff, or at least still take the Republican side because at least they're not Democrats. But that belief, of course, is a product of the same incompetence and same narcissism. The public knows better than this. No one is buying this. This is just Mitch McConnell exposing the game so everyone can see it. But how else? Are uniparty communists with R's next to their name exposing themselves? Well, they're exposing themselves as shills for the military industrial complex by wagging the dog for a confrontation 
with Russia over Ukraine. And Tucker Carlson was great on this last night. I'm going to play a clip from that. And Steve Bannon went Steve Bannon on the whole thing today with a clip from Roger Wicker. This is Tucker last night. How much has this penetrated the psyche of Washington, D.C.? Well, here's a sad piece of tape. This is Joni Ernst, who's totally affable, nice Republican, sort of reasonable in most things from the Midwest. Suddenly sounding like a bloodthirsty warmonger, sounding a lot like actually Adam Schiff when she talks about that dastardly Vladimir Putin. He needs to say to Vladimir Putin that we are no longer going to allow you to continue with the Nord Stream 2 pipeline. We need you to know and understand that we will defend Ukraine. Uh, we will provide them assistance. He needs to make that very clear. Putin is so bad, we're going to cut off natural gas to Western Europe in retaliation against him in December. We're going to freeze Germany and Luxembourg, and that's going to teach Vladimir Putin. Again, what you just saw there is a child who has no idea what she's talking about, but keeps talking anyway. We will defend Ukraine, says Joni Ernst. Remember, this is a senator from Iowa. So what happens if we don't defend Ukraine, Joni Ernst? Will kids in Des Moines grow up to speak Russian? No one asked her that question. She's never thought about it for a moment. They're all just reading from the same talking points, from Adam Schiff to Roger Wicker to Joni Ernst. It turns out that foreign lobbying campaigns work pretty well, and that's why the Ukrainians paid for one in Washington. And here is Roger Wicker. You know, I'm Senator rule out. I would not rule out military action. I, I think we start, we start making a mistake when we take options off the table. So I, I would hope the president keeps that option on the table and to the extent that he has agreed to to reverse his mistake on Nord Stream 2 if that is in fact what came out of the, uh, out of uh, the discussion today uh, I would applaud that hope he does it all right what does military action mean senator well military action uh, could mean uh, that that we stand off with our ships in the Black Sea and and we rain destruction on on Russian military capability, it could mean that. It could mean that we participate, and I would not rule that out. I would not rule out American troops on the ground. We don't, do you know, we don't rule out uh, first use nuclear um, action. Uh, we, we, We don't think it'll happen, but there's certain things in negotiations, if you're gonna be tough, that you don't take off the table. And so I think we, I think the president should say that everything is on the table. And frankly, to the extent that you, um, that you had Democrats on the show right before me being quoted as saying we need to be tougher, I support that and I appreciate that. I think they, they represent the fear that we have, the realization that we have in the Congress that losing a free democratic Ukraine to Russian invasion would be a game changer for a free Europe. Now, something to notice in both of those clips is that neither senator described the American need to do any of this. They are expecting that everyone will just agree that Russia's threat, real or imagined, to Ukraine right now somehow poses a threat to a free Europe. 
And Roger Wicker just said, in order to sound tough in negotiations, nothing should be taken off the table, including a first strike nuclear attack. And this is just madness. This is the military industrial complex wanting to start a new engagement now that they don't have Afghanistan anymore. And it seems like all of this tough talk must be some result of the fact that Biden himself does not represent a strong position against Putin. Biden suggested possible sanctions. So rather than the president setting foreign policy, and by the way, Joe Biden, not the real president, Joe Biden being controlled by other people. That aside, the president is still supposed to be setting foreign policy. We're not supposed to have senators talking about what military options they would recommend to defend Ukraine, including first strike nuclear. And naturally, this is speculation, but it would seem like those in control or in partial control are not very happy with what the fake president is able to accomplish on their behalf. And this is very similar to the Afghanistan situation. The military industrial complex did not want Biden to pull out of Afghanistan. It was really obvious in the run up to it. And it was really obvious in the execution of that disastrous withdrawal. And we discussed that in August. It was obvious that there were competing motivations. Neither of them aligned with America first. Both of them aligned with varying global communist interests. And my takeaway is that these people are not getting what they bargained for by keeping all of these illegitimate America last politicians in office. And so let's see what propaganda state media CNN has to say about this. This is an opinion piece by Frida Gittis or Gittis. The ominous signals Putin is sending. Is Russian President Vladimir Putin going to launch an invasion into neighboring Ukraine? Enormous movements of Russian troops and military equipment toward the shared border have raised alarm among Ukrainians and their Western friends. Kremlin spokesman Dmitry Peskov called it hysteria, and the Kremlin denies any plans to invade. But the words of Russian officials have long lost credibility. After all, it was Putin who turned gaslighting into a political weapon. And it is an interesting little trick right there. She is basically using everybody knows right? Everybody knows that Vladimir Putin is a bad guy who always lies. Therefore, if he says he's not trying to go to war, then what he really means is he is trying to go to war and we're just being tricked. So we have to assume that he is trying to go to war. And in response, we're going to try to go to war to draw him into a war, thereby proving that he's a bad guy and a liar. And we were right all along. In a video call with Putin on Tuesday, the White House says President Joe Biden warned the Russian president that any escalation would be met with strong economic and other measures by the U.S. and its allies. The White House noted Biden reiterated, as he has done many times, his support for Ukraine's territorial integrity and said the two presidents agreed to have their teams continue their discussions. And of course, Biden supports whatever they need in Ukraine because Biden is corrupt regarding Ukraine. And that 
was the substance and the subject of the first impeachment hoax of Donald Trump. Russian denials aside, the West is concerned enough about Putin's intentions that Biden and the Russian president are holding an urgent virtual meeting on Tuesday as experts warn about the growing risks of a new war. Putin's actions and intentions may be deliberately wrapped in a fog, but his track record is clear. If he's allowed to advance his goals without serious consequences, he will continue to escalate his foreign policy of bullying and intimidation. In 2014, as little green men dressed in unmarked military uniforms deployed across Ukraine's Crimean Peninsula, Putin denied they were his forces until Russia took control of the territory and annexed it. Anyone who paid attention to how Russia stole that strategic peninsula from a sovereign country knows how much weight to give the Kremlin's words now. As illegitimate, U.S. Secretary of State Antony Blinken noted, we've seen this playbook. This time, the Western alliance led by the United States wants to stop Russia before its little green men cross Ukraine's borders with all their heavy armament. Nobody knows for certain if Putin will give the order to invade. But U.S. and NATO officials are extremely worried. U.S. intelligence believes that Russia has a plan for an operation involving up to 175,000 troops, more than half already in place, along with heavy artillery and armor. According to Ukraine's defense minister, Russian troops could cross into Ukraine as early as next month. And we definitely have to take Ukraine's defense minister's word for it. Part of Moscow's playbook includes creating a justification for an attack, and that part of the strategy is already moving forward. And that's so perceptive that they can see Moscow working to create a justification for their attack, especially as U.S. senators who are in the Republican Party are creating a justification for an American attack. But hey, I'm crazy. When Russia attacked Ukraine in the past, capturing Crimea and supporting pro-Russian separatists in Donbass, the region of Ukraine adjacent to Russia, the Kremlin claimed it was doing it to defend ethnic Russians living under Ukrainian rule. Putin is already deploying the argument for a future assault. An elaborate information operation, among other propaganda points, paints Ukrainian leaders as puppets of the West. And they are definitely not that. Not with their relationships with Obama or Biden or Clinton or any of them. They are definitely not puppets of the West and definitely not engaged in corrupt dealings with Western leaders. And it's so interesting that Putin's propaganda is to claim the things he's doing are in defense of ethnic groups. <laughs> the global communists would never do that in their propaganda. Why would Putin risk provoking NATO going to war against Ukraine? Or even if he decides to call off the suspected military offensive? Yes, he's going to call off something that may or may not be happening. Good point. But let me start that again. Why would Putin risk provoking NATO? going to war against Ukraine, or even if he decides to call off the suspected military offensive, walking to the edge of such a dangerous precipice. Putin has several objectives. Above all, the Kremlin wants to destabilize Ukraine and prevent it from exercising its rights as an independent nation to craft its own future. Ukraine is drawing closer to the West. It wants to join NATO, and it is a fledgling democracy in sharp contrast to Russia. Ukraine's existence as a democracy alongside Russia, where Putin has become an increasingly repressive autocrat, makes the Kremlin uneasy. 
Putin wants to secure what in the Cold War days was accepted as spheres of influence, aiming to keep the countries that used to be part of the Soviet Union under Moscow's sway. He has taken to saying Russians and Ukrainians are one people, a statement that carries ominous portents and which many Ukrainians vehemently reject. But other Ukrainians don't reject it. Huh? I wonder who's right. The Ukraine gambit isn't just a push against Ukraine. It's also a push against the West. As his troops amass near Ukraine, Putin is also trying to paint his Ukraine concerns as defensive. He argues that he distrusts not just Ukraine's leaders, but its NATO friends, arguing that NATO's expansion to Russia's border would be a threat to Russian security. Putin is making wholly untenable demands on the West, laying out what he describes as his red lines. More specifically, Putin is demanding that NATO guarantee it will not expand toward the east, closer to Russia's borders. Biden said this weekend he would not agree to any red lines. Imagine NATO today saying it will ban not just Ukraine, but any country near Russia, Finland, Sweden, Georgia, from joining it either now or in the future. Putin has other demands. He complains about anti-missile defensive systems in Poland, for example. Russia, too, by the way, has missiles capable of hitting major European cities. Having watched Russia's behavior in recent years, its neighbors have good reason to seek protection. If Putin's goal was to draw Ukraine away from the West, there is no sign that this is happening. The United States is reaffirming its ironclad commitment to Ukraine's sovereignty and territorial integrity. That's a quote, sovereignty and territorial integrity in Blinken's oft repeated words. Okay, so from the administration's viewpoint, that is the American objective over there. We have an ironclad commitment to Ukraine's sovereignty and territorial integrity. Now, why do we have that ironclad commitment? No one can explain it. As Putin menaces the West with a military buildup along the Ukrainian border, he's trying to achieve other goals too. He is showing once again that Russia can make trouble for the former Soviet republics, its former Eastern European satellites, and the West, where he has already shown himself willing to squeeze fuel supplies during cold winter months, which is exactly what Joni Ernst just threatened. Putin claims the gas shortages are not Russia's doing, but not everyone is convinced. Oh, once everyone is convinced, then we can believe it. An invasion now, however, is potentially much costlier than the swift Crimea operation. Over more than half a decade of fighting, Ukrainian troops have become battle hardened. Few expect NATO to go to war against Russia, but NATO is not impartial. Ukraine's toughened soldiers now have much better weaponry provided by the West. A Russian invasion would provoke stiff resistance. Casualties on both sides could be enormous. In addition, Russia could be hit with more punishing Western sanctions. The Biden administration is already designing sanctions that would inflict, quote, significant and severe economic harm on the Russian economy, end quote, according to a U.S. official, pretty much just anybody. If Putin moves in, the Russian people may just experience another awful war with young soldiers returning home in body bags and the economy limping from the cost of war and sanctions. As well, the move into Ukraine has the potential to create precisely the opposite result of what Putin claims he wants now. By invading, he would reaffirm the threat posed by Russia against its neighbors. An invasion wouldn't just bring Ukraine and the West closer. It would make the rest of the people living in Russia's neighborhood yearn for closer ties with the United States, Europe and NATO, just as the Soviet invasions of the Eastern European countries made them all rush to join NATO as soon as they were free of Moscow's clutches. Oh, so there we go. That's it.
it would make the rest of the people living in Russia's neighborhood yearn for closer ties with the United States, Europe, and NATO. You got that? Everyone becomes more dependent on the global communist order the bigger the perceived Russian threat gets. Man, it's hard to see why Russia is becoming such a big threat, according to uniparty communists and propaganda state media. I am very confused. These people are showing exactly who they are. I'll be back tomorrow at the same reasonable time on the same reasonable podcast network. I don't have a network. Masks and lockdowns don't work. They lied to you about a pandemic and Joe Biden will never be president. Goodbye. Whether you're a total newbie to podcasting or even if you've had a show before like me, you know how intimidating it can be to start your show. The tech side especially can be daunting. That's why I'm so grateful Anchor exists. If you haven't heard about Anchor, it's the easiest way to make a podcast. They knock down all the barriers to entry. Let me explain. First off, it's free. I don't know how or why, but I'm happy about it. The platform's great. There are creation tools that allow you to record and edit your podcast right from your phone or computer. Anchor will distribute your podcast for you so it can be heard on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and many more. I can't even begin to describe how much easier it was to get my show on all the major platforms this time than it was a few years ago. You can make money from your podcast with no minimum listenership. That's right. You build your show, you make money. It's everything you need to make a podcast in one place, and the company is committed to the success of its content creators. Go download the free Anchor app or go to anchor.fm to get started. Thanks for listening. Follow the podcast on the Telegram Messenger app at t.me slash I'm your moderator. You can join the discussion at t.me slash I'm reasonable. I'm also on Gab and Getter at I'm your moderator. The Substack is I'm your moderator.substack.com and the merch site is cancelcouture.com. You can also go direct to that at shop.spreadshirt.com slash cancel dash couture. I'll see you next time out on the range. In my mind, that's the end game. Thanks for listening. If you'd like to follow what I'm reading and thinking throughout the day, you can do that by downloading the Telegram Messenger app and going to t.me slash I'm your moderator. On social media, you can follow me on Truth Social, Getter, and Gab at I'm your moderator. I also have channels on Rumble and BitChute. If you'd like to follow the writing, you can find me at I'mYourModerator.Substack.com. The merch site is CancelCouture.com or go direct shop.spreadshirt.com slash cancel dash couture. If you'd like to support the podcast financially, the best place to do that is Kofi. Go to ko-fi.com slash I'm your moderator. And all of these details will appear in the show notes with each episode. I'll see you soon down on the range.
It's hell!